0: Okay, so we are in a series on prayer. We're looking through the Psalms together. Uh, All summer we'll be doing that. Um, Some of you know that uh, we got a chance to go to New York City a couple weekends back. Uh, We visited the 9-11 Memorial, which was uh, breathtaking. Um, Certainly one of the most meaningful highlights of our trip, amazing. Uh, There is a woman named Elia Zadino. Uh, If you haven't had a chance to take that, if you're in New York, you need to do it. Uh, the guides there are first-rate, one, communicators, but two, incredibly passionate and committed to what's going on there. Really well done. There's a, a woman named Aliyah Zadino who survived both terrorist attacks on the World Trade Centers. So the first one in 1983 or 1993, remember the parking garage? Well, we learned that The goal was to hit the parking garage of Tower 1 so that it would fall into Tower 2. I didn't know that. She was at that one. Then she was at the second one where the hijacked plane, September 11, 2001, brought down the towers, 3,000 souls murdered, slaughtered, uh, entered a 20-year war that the United States had on the War of Terror. Uh, But also, we learned something, and that was... Did you know that it would have been a lot worse? I think we would have known it would have been a lot worse after 9.30, but some of the reasons why that's the case. There would have been more people there, obviously in the buildings, but that was the first day of election for a new mayor, so everybody was voting first before they went to work. It was also the first day of school from a summer break, so they were dropping off their kids before they got to work. Also, the New York Stock Exchange didn't open until 9.30, so it wasn't fully staffed. Also, the visitor platform of the World Trade Center doesn't open until 9.30, so there weren't tourists up there. So anyway, let's get back to Ilya Zadino. On September 11, 2001, she stumbles out of Tower One, and she thought she was going to experience the same thing she did the first time around eight years earlier. She thought she was going to stumble out of the darkness and into the light. She thought she was going to stumble out of doom into deliverance. And out of sheer danger into safety, she thought so, but this time it was different. She says, quote, I'm slowing down because I'm starting to realize I'm not just looking at debris. My mind says it's the wrong color. That was the first thing. Then I started saying it's the wrong shape. Over and over in my mind, it's the wrong shape. It was like I was trying to keep the information out, but my eyes were not allowing me to understand. I couldn't afford to understand, so I was like, "No, it can't be." Then, when I finally realized what it meant to see the wrong color, the wrong shape, that's when I realized I'm seeing bodies. That's when I froze. Amanda Ripley is the author of a book that uh, I picked up one summer. I want to say about five, six years ago. I don't know what it was. I sometimes I'll just look around and see what's on the bestseller list and. I saw this and it's called Unthinkable, Who Survives Disasters and Why? And this is what she said about Zadina's response. Freezing is as common as fleeing in the repertoire of human disaster responses. So freezing, fleeing, fighting for your life, is there, is there another way to deal with danger and disaster? Is there? Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to read Psalm 27. We're also going to be incorporating some of the things we've learned over the past two weeks that we like to really look at the text when we dig into it. So we're going to do both. So this is of David. Verse 1, the Lord is my light. In my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, yes, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I seek. Hide me not. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord... Thank you for your word, thank you for this season together that we get to learn about communicating a dialogue, conversing, communing with you. And so, Lord, hear our prayers and teach us how, encourage us, show us how, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look up at verse one. If we can, oh, Steve, yes, dude, you're on it. Okay, so what's going on here? I mean, what's happening? The Lord is my light and my salvation. I want you to look at the light. The Lord is a force. Remember, let there be light. What did light do at the very beginning of creation? Scatters the darkness. And John, John calls Jesus a light that comes into the world. So we have this, this Lord is a force that drives David's darkness away. Do you see this? So when light meets darkness, who wins every time? Light always wins. The Lord is my light, no fear. Then you look at this Lord being his salvation. Now, it's actually a deliverer, a victor. So the picture here is a king on a battlefield who actually obliterates the enemy. So for David, the Lord is this champion, this deliverer, that meets danger and meets doom on the battlefield and always wins. No fear. So what's going on here? Confidence. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So for David, the Lord is the safest place on the planet. So when dangers and fears and anxieties and assaults and doom assail him, The stronghold always holds. No fear. What's going on here? Confidence. Verse two. So, example number one. Let's talk about evildoers, which are literally people who do evil, assail me to eat up my flesh. The picture here is a beast mauling David. What's fascinating, though, that the the beast's, Fangs or teeth, though, are words, lying words, unkind, untrue words, slanderous words that rip and devour the flesh. Today's culture we could describe as pretty beastlike, couldn't we? Even in the church culture today, it could be described as Pretty beast like. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, now don't miss this, don't miss this, it is they who stumble and fall. What is going on here? Confidence. Now watch how everything escalates. We're going to get to verse 3. Are you ready? It doesn't get better. It actually gets worse. So an army encamp against me. So all of a sudden, personal enemies are now grown into armies. My heart shall not fear. Notice he's saying, my heart. Do you see that? My heart. That means in the innermost part of his being, down to the roots of his very being, there is confidence. Though war rise against me, and all of a sudden personal abuse is now turned into a war, yet I will be confident. Yet I will be confident. Yet I will be confident. (laughs) What is going on here? Confidence. In the roots of his very being. The Bible also describes that as Peace, security, bravery, boldness. How does this feel to you? How does all this feel to you? How do you take this? How do you experience this? I'll tell you how I take it Disneyland. Disneyland. I mean, seriously, who really thinks and feels this way in darkness? Seriously, I mean, who really experiences dangers and disasters and fears this way? Who does this? Who is confident like this? Well, apparently David was. So immediately, which is so fascinating about the Psalms, immediately what we're learning is that David has gone places that probably you and I haven't gone. And he can help us. He can be a guide. So even as you go into the Psalms, many times you'll read the Psalms and you'll go like, wow. And you know, that's a good response. Because David or the psalmist is gone to a place you haven't been, but they're meant to lead you there. So listen to them, Let them teach you. Let them show you that's for free. So apparently the message in Psalm 27 is this, your confidence, this deep inner peace in the very roots of your being, your confidence is a big deal to God. Apparently the message of Psalm 27 is, hey, your confidence, Jeff Hatton, is a big deal to me. Now, this is where Psalm 27 loses a lot of us, doesn't it? I mean, come on. Wait, my confidence is a big deal to you, God? Really? Well, I disagree. And that's just looking at my past week. All I have to do is look at the experience of my past week, and I don't feel like my confidence is a big deal to you. My confidence is a big deal to God, right? Some of you are thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I sort of agree with that. I mean, my life sort of goes pretty well. But then when you dig down a little bit more into kind of the roots of what's going on down there and you realize, yeah, well, my confidence seems to be more connected to or coming from, you know, positive circumstances. So I feel pretty good because I'm having positive circumstances. And it seems to be connected and coming from positive relationships. And all the positive relationships in my life are pretty good. So I'm doing pretty good. And it seems to come from a positive performance. Generally speaking, I have a pretty good positive performance in the areas that I care about. So yeah, I guess I am doing okay because of those things. My confidence is a big deal to God? The rest of us are thinking, man, I want the confidence of Psalm 27. Don't you? I want it. But it's so elusive. Smoke. Smoke. I see it. Gosh. Can't catch it. And yes, I've prayed for it, loser. And yes, I've read my Bible, and I read my Bible, and I study doctrine, loser. And yes, I've asked for more of the Holy Spirit, and yes, I'm sincere, and I'm faithful, and I'm committed. And yes, I've read the book you highly recommend, and yes, I just finished the 10-year discipleship training program that you told me to do. So where is my confidence? Where is my confidence? Let's go to verse 4. You ready? One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that. Oh, my. He is about to tell you where confidence comes from. Do you see that? That, you loop it, it's going to give you the content of where confidence comes from. He's telling you, look, I'm only after one thing. One thing, because one thing is the origin. One thing is the creator of confidence. One thing is the headwaters of confidence. One thing I'm after in this life, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire of his temple. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. Find house of the Lord, that's temple. So, what happens at the temple? What goes on at the temple? Here's what goes on at the temple. In the temple, in the Old Testament, in that epic of salvation history, God localized his presence. The God of the invisible world, the eternal God, said, I am going to localize my presence in the temple. So in the temple, I'm going to dwell in the temple because God localizes his presence there. In other words, God shows up in the Old Testament there. In other words, God connects to sinners there. God is near there. This is why David goes to... uh, Goes there to what? Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You see that? Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Well, what's the beauty of the Lord? The beauty of the Lord. Up first, I want you to see that. Oh, we're gonna have to work on that. Okay. So, Lord, it should be all capital. L O R D. L O R D is Yahweh, and this is his personal name. But it's his personal name just for sinners. So this is not a personal name for non-sinners. This is a personal name for sinners. This is a personal name for messed up people. God has a special relationship with messed up people. And the messed up people is assumed in this whole passage. So I asked of Yahweh, the Lord, that I may go to the house of the Lord, the nearness of the Lord, the Lord that has this special relationship with people, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, this special relationship with sinners. What's the beauty? It's the pleasantness, the attractiveness the radiance, the beauty of a God that loves sinners. It's another way of saying His mercy and His grace. I am going to gaze upon the wonders, the splendors, the texture, the terrain. Mercy that shines like the sun. And it's the most beautiful. You know, there's, when it talks about in the Bible things that are beautiful, the Lord is the object that's usually talked about the most. I mean, sometimes it says women, sometimes it says sunsets in the Bible. But when you think of the beauty of the Lord, you're talking about source beauty and anything else that's beautiful is just reflective or secondary it gets its particles and its concentrations of beauty from source beauty and according to this text source beauty is the grace of god his is drawing near to sinners which is why david does even more in the temple do you see that and to inquire in the temple see that at the bottom to inquire in the temple This literally means David is investigating the grace of God. This literally means that David is thinking about the grace of God in God's presence. This literally means he's asking questions. He's incredibly curious. He's like, I wonder about this about you. Is this too good to be true? He asks those questions. He thinks in the presence of God. He asks questions in the presence of God. He's pondering, inquiring. He's doing doctrine in the presence of God. He's inquiring, investigating. So let's do this. Let's put them all together. You ready? Let's put the temple together, the nearness of God. Let's put the beauty of the Lord together, the grace of God. Let's put inquiring in the temple, asking, being incredibly curious about the grace of God. And you get where confidence comes from. I'm simply calling it the place of near grace. Near grace gives confidence. If you've got a better one, I'm willing to hear it. People, performance, control, circumstances do not give you confidence. They take it. Watch how this plays out in real life. Let's go to verse five. Are you ready? Four. He's gonna give you some real specificity here. Here it is, you ready? Four, he's gonna, that four is gonna tell you, here's what confidence, here's what the nearness of grace does to me. Notice that he's just simply restating verse one. Isn't that interesting? It's a restatement of verse one. Four, so we just talked about him coming in contact. Him coming in contact with near grace, he experiences confidence. How do we know? Four, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent he will lift me high upon the rock. That is verse one restated. The Lord is my light, my deliverer, my stronghold. Now, watch what happens. Next verse. Let's say our confidence comes from people. Okay? Let's say it comes from people treating you well. People respecting you. People not disrespecting you. People not... Mauling you and tearing you apart with their words. Critical, angry, whatever it is, lies, slander. Let's say it's people saying good things about you, liking you. Let's say it's people loving and accepting you. They're giving you their approval, their recognition, they're giving you their affirmation. Not rejecting you, not canceling you, not threatening you, not being a bully. Let's just say it's people. Let's say it's good things. Verse 6, if that's the case, would be written this way. You ready? Watch. Look at verse 6 while I read it. If your confidence comes from people, but now my head, which is my confidence in this text, but now my confidence, head is confidence, but now my confidence shall be lowered below my enemies all around me, and I will sink into myself, lose myself, and I will be anxious, I will be fearful. I will be insecure. I will be sad. I will be depressed. Near grace gives confidence. So, how do you get near to near grace? go to verse 7 This is unbelievable When I saw it, I mean I read it the first time and I went Oh, wait. He hasn't prayed yet. For 6 verses he hasn't prayed yet. Now he prays. Verse 7. This is phenomenal. This is crazy. This is the Psalms. The Psalms are prayers. They're all prayers. But so far in six verses, David hasn't prayed yet. Not one prayer. So the question is, how do you get near to near grace? The first answer is not by praying first. Just so you know that you heard what I just said. The way you get near to near grace is not by praying first. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Six verses had already happened before this prayer. Six verses of David reading his Bible before this prayer. Six verses of David doing doctrine, gazing at grace, gazing at the beauty of God, curious about the grace of God. Listening to God, six verses of God speaking to David, six verses of listening to God, six verses of shutting up and listening have already happened before this passage. Don't miss this. Look at verse 8. You have said, Seek my face. Well, when did God say that? When did God say, You shall seek my face? Did you see it anywhere? You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, "Your Lord, your face, Lord, do I seek? First, there's words, then there's prayer. Do you see how that's happening? You have said. Well, when did he say you, you have said? Well, the first six verses you have said. And then when you pull out and you look at the whole psalms, the whole psalms are prayers responding to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, numbers, Deuteronomy. And what's happening is the psalmists are reading the first five books of the Bible. And when they read the first five books of the Bible, they're listening to God. And they're being spoken to God, and they're now writing prayers back to God. See how this works? You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. You have said, God's words are primary speech. Prayer is answering speech. This order will change your life. This order will change your relationship with God. This order will change your relationships. This order will change you. This order will change your life. Here's what it looks like in real life for me. Most people struggle with prayer. Are you in that camp? You can raise your hand. This is church. Good. All right. Now, that person next to you is not a good prayer either. All right. Most people struggle with prayer. Uh, many a day I have sat in a room in my years of being a Christian, some room, a bedroom, a dorm room, uh, an apartment, <laughs> one room studio at Brown, just above Miss Havisham, who was scary below me. She was because Nancy met her, and she's like, oh, my word, yeah, yeah, and many a day, I would sit there uh, trying to do spontaneous prayer, you know, feel the spirit, uh, do planned prayer, do journal prayer, do Operation World Prayer, right, Matt? That's what we did in those days, didn't we? Yes, because we come from the same campus of ministry. And I would be in those moments, and even when in our house here and in my study, and I would get this prayer, and I would start praying. And eventually I'd look up in the ceiling, and I'd see a spot on the ceiling. I'd say, oh, Lord, what is that spot? Hey, did one of the kids come in here? And then I'd be praying, and I'd be looking around at my books, and I'd see an empty space, and I'd go, who stole a book from my library? Or I'd be praying, oh, Lord, and i would say to him, I don't know what to say. Oh Lord, this feels so mechanical, so list-doing, so boring. Oh Lord, I don't know how to pray. Most ministers struggle with the Sunday blues. We call them the Sunday blues. See, Saturday night, we call it Saturday night fever, because that's when you're trying to get... Feverishly, a sermon together, right? But on Sunday, we call it the Sunday Blues. So thankful to read about Spurgeon and Dr. Jones and Whitfield and Edwards and even Luther. Luther would be so in the Sunday Blues on a Sunday that his wife, Katie, would walk in sometimes dressed all in black, and he'd be like, what's wrong? Who died? And she would say, apparently God has. Sunday blues, we have a rule in our house, no serious conversations. You cannot talk about the state of the Cowboys to me on Sunday. It's just not going to happen. And sometimes I find myself on Sundays disbelieving that the world's even round, and apparently that's not a big deal (laughs) anymore today. So you doubt everything on Sundays, right, for a pastor. So sometime on Monday and sometime sometime on Sunday or sometime on early Monday I will crawl into my study without a pulse and I will pick up my Bible and I will read and I will pick up my Bible and I will listen and I will pick up my Bible And I will luxuriate in the text. And I will pick up my Bible and be spoken back to life again. And now I have something to say. Near grace gives confidence. So how do you get near to near grace? First, Listen to primary words. Listen to the words that have divine energy in them. Go to the words. They have divine life, divine energy, divine power. They speak dead people back to life. Then learn to pray. Oh yeah, God, can we talk about this? Sure. I'm really concerned about this. Course you are. I really want to see this happen. I do too. Glad we're you're getting on my page. I can't believe that you love me. (laughs) Yeah. So near grace gives confidence. But how? How does near grace give confidence? You ask that question? Let's look at verse 9 and 10. Let's wrap this up. You ready? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. Okay, so what's happening here in 9 and 10 is that David is experiencing near grace. Remember, the first six verses was him actually doing theology. It was him actually reading his Bible. Oh, and starting to think about it and apply it to him. You're my light. You're the light. You're my light. You're the deliverer. Look what you did in the Exodus. You're my deliverer. You're the strong. You're my strong. You see, that was first six verses. Now what we got here is he's starting, and he starts to pray. He converses back to God. God's speaking him back to life. He starts talking back to God. Now what's happening is he is experiencing grace. Amazing. Near grace. Hide not your face from me. Uh, This is literally as God is facing him. It's used three times already, the word face. It literally is God faces David with nothing but favor. You face me with favor. There's nothing but love and acceptance there. So that's why he goes into this, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away. Oh, you've been my house. Don't cast me out. Don't forsake me. In other words, I want This favor, it's all I need, it's the one thing I need, it's everything I need, it's the source of my confidence, it's how I live, it's how I work, it's how I king, it's how I do marriage, it's how I parent, it's everything. It's how I resolve conflict, it's how I handle my enemies, it's how I handle mauling words, it's how I handle armies, it's everything. The picture here is breathtaking. Let's go down one more. One more. Verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He is now experiencing near grace. He is saying, he is going to the most powerful love on the planet, which is a parent's love for their child. Right? And he realizes this. If it's that bad, That my mom and dad forsake me. If I'm that bad that my mom and my dad forsake me, you won't. You always take me in. you always take me in David knows that one day that a light will come David knows that one day a deliverer will come David knows that one day a stronghold will come called the Messiah and David knows cuz he writes about it the first five books write about him this is not foreign knowledge to David and he knows that this Messiah will be cast off by his father He knows that this Messiah will be forsaken by his parent. So that he, a sinner, and all the sinners in Israel, and all the sinners for generations to come, will not be cast off, will always be taken in. That's. It's the only way to live. It is the only way you'll survive. It's the only way you can now face enemies, armies, dangers, disasters. It's one thing. That's it. If we don't have that one thing, we will freeze. If we don't have that one thing, we will flee. If we don't have that one thing, We will fight, which is what I do. Amen.